So certainly appreciate um, your engagement of the topic of mental wellness and health among responders. Uh, it is very heartening to see this emerge as an area of focus, uh, both here and across the country. And so uh, glad to be able to share some information with you today that hopefully gets folks thinking uh, about what we're doing now and what we can do in the future to keep one another safe uh, in this room, because obviously we, there's so much discussion across the industry about what you do for patients. Figure it's about high time we talk about what you do for you, uh, which also of course serves the mission of enabling you to keep taking care of patients. Uh, so certainly a, a bit of a cyclical conversation that we think is a bit uh, past time. That said, this presentation, uh, this is how we share a foxhole, uh, is going to uh, involve a couple different uh, individuals, including Captain Brader here to my right, uh, and our colleague Ron Nichols from Texas, uh, who unfortunately can't be here because he is under COVID quarantine. Uh, and you'll hear him speak a bit more himself, assuming the multimedia does what we hope it's going to do today. Uh, subtitle, Leveraging EPCR Data to Identify the Risk of Post-Traumatic Stress. Uh, and hopefully that gets you, uh, gets you thinking a little bit, uh, and we'll kick off right there. I also want to do a special thanks to our colleague and friend, Art Gru, uh, who provided some of the data that you'll see later in this presentation. So, uh, I'd like to start with a show of hands. Uh, how many in this room would agree that EPCRs suck in general? That's all right, be honest. I know it's true, my company makes one. I would agree, in general, they suck. All right, uh, so let's assume for a minute that, uh, well, let's talk about why they suck. I guess let's do that. Uh, first of all, they've been associated with billing. Show of hands, how many people on the line here care about billing? All right. Okay, how many don't? Sounds good, I'm just being honest here. Uh, they can get people in legal trouble, or at least there's the expectation that they can get folks in legal trouble. And of course, they're associated with busy work because what would you rather do at the end of a busy day than go do paperwork, all right? Right, okay. Uh, and, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about this because at the end of the day, I try to find, as we talk about the emotional responses in this presentation uh, that we'll talk about here, why is it that people get so up in arms about something like a document. And it turns out there's a lot tied up in that, right? It's when the question of if I get in trouble, my, my, my livelihood could be on the line, right? Our agency might not be able to continue to keep paying me and so on and so forth. There's a lot of fear that gets bound up in this document. So let me see if I can invert that on its head. What if an EPCR could save your life? And I realized that may be a misnomer of a conversation for a piece of paper that's been digitized, that goes to billing and goes to legal. But over the course of the next few minutes, I hope you'll come to see that it's not, of course, the document itself that saved your life, it's what's in it, right? Because at the end of the day, what an EPCR is, and I don't care which one you're using, they're all, this same concept applies to all of them. It's a summary of what you've done to take care of some poor soul who called you. That's it, period, end of story. Everything else is an adjunct. But because it's a sum total of everything that you have done, it also provides a view into what you've experienced. So I get this question all the time. What am I supposed to put in this document? I have no idea. I only built the thing. What actually is supposed to go in this document is what you did and why. Who you did it to and why. Right? We talked in the previous presentation a little bit about things like restraint. If you found the need to do that, tell me why, right? And that also helps me understand what you were experiencing that made you need 
to do whatever it is that you did. And so the question becomes, and this was the purpose brought to me by my colleague Ron Nichols, again, who you'll hear from in a few minutes, that if the EPCR contains the data that tells whoever's looking at it what you just went through, then what if we could use that information to also understand what you just went through? Right? And instead of relying, because there's so much talk, show of hands if you've heard of the word stigma associated with mental health, <laughs> if you've heard the word weakness associated with mental health, right? any of these negative associations that make the process of coming forward to say, let's have a conversation, fearful, whether it, are you capable to do the job, right? are you tough enough to do the job, are you resilient enough, what if you could eliminate any of that stigma? And the person who's going to be reviewing this document and the technology that in which it's captured could alert the person who's going to be reviewing this document to say, I need to have a conversation. <laughs> the fact is, anybody can experience a bad call. Captain Brader is going to talk about some of the ones that he's gone on and what that experience has been like. But the fact is, Negative experiences in this industry are quite evenly distributed, right? In any given call, you have no idea what you're going to experience. I work a lot in areas like community paramedicine, where we talk about the idea of going out and seeing frequent users of emergency services. Well, the fact is, one of the most risky things, and I hope none of you is doing this, write this down and don't ever do this again if you're doing this. There is an association and an interest in tying community paramedicine to CAD because certain locations are where people often have, you know, maybe they live and they're a frequent user, and so we want to know when we go back there that we can flag it. You want to know what does get you in trouble? The one time that you go back thinking it's going to be a CP call, and it turns out to be something very much not a CP call. Right? The fact is any call can go wrong. Uh, there, there are some folks in this room who talk a lot about the importance of being able to cope with the experience of end of life. Right? Everybody can experience that. So again, imagine the impact that could be had, whether we're measuring it in terms of work, in terms of time on task, in terms of dollars saved, in terms of lives saved, not just the ones that you take care of, but your own, particularly over time, if that data could let somebody know that you need to have a conversation. And you don't have to worry about stepping forward. They'll step to you and say, I hear you caught a bad call. Let's talk about it. <laughs> And so I found this quote, this will be my last uh, comment for a moment, I found this quote a couple days ago and I just thought it was the most serendipitous and emotionally connected quote to this conversation. These mountains that you are carrying, you were only supposed to climb. And isn't that just the definition of what mobile medicine is every single day? But you're not only carrying your own mountains and what's happening at home and what's happening in your life, but you're also carrying that and everybody's put upon you. So that said, I'd like to introduce Captain Brader to talk a little bit about his experience, where we were, where we are, where we came from. So this is going to be a little different because I'm not going to stand in front of the podium because I pace and I'm not going to use notes because I'm going to tell you all some things about my life. And as I alluded to, I've been in this business for somewhere around 40 years. Okay, Johnny and Roy were still in the first run on TV when I started. Um, over the years, I've dabbled in every kind of fire or EMS, different venue you can have, whether I was doing 
transfers or flying or I thought I'd done everyone. One young kid in my shift the other day came and said, hey, tell me about being a cruise ship medic. I said, cruise ship medic? I said, yeah. I said, I've never been a cruise ship medic. That's why I haven't done. I haven't been a cruise ship medic. So are you sure? I said, I'm sure I'm not. I've been a cruise ship medic. He said, oh, because everybody says you were on the ark with Noah. Okay, so I've been around a while, you know, and I have uh, mentored all the people. I've taught a lot of classes over the years. Um, and I've been a part of getting mental health wrong for a long time, over 40 years, and I didn't know that until this last year. And so I'm gonna challenge some of the ways of thinking, some of the ways we've taught people, some of the ways we've done things. I'm gonna hopefully make somebody angry because I think at least it was worth showing up. Um, and at some point I'll tell you about my last 18 months that it really changed my life, okay? But my last 18 months, was probably, I will say, is the worst 18 months of my 57 years on this earth, okay? And I survived some rapid hemorrhage, and that was the worst year. So, um, when I started this business, uh, the first thing my first EMS chief said to me was, you got three to five years, and then get out. I said, what? He said, three to five years, that's all you're good for. Three to five years, you're burnt up, you're done, you're fried, go do something else. This is not a career. This is a stopping point on the rest of your life, but if you stay in EMS more than three to five years, you will ruin yourself. So, I don't know what to make of that, but they fired him six weeks later, so, um, you know, if he did it himself, that's, that's a whole other story. So, my very first week of EMS, I went on a call, and uh, man, something fell in the shower. Okay, we can handle this. I show up at the engine company, we got fire guys, don't know why yet, that guy. You know, engine companies all stand, all three are outside, it should have been a clue. And they go over and they whisper in my uh, preceptor's ear, and they say, okay, they say, hey, something fell in the shower, go get him up, get him out, do an assessment, we'll wait here. So I walk in, I throw back the shower curtain. Well, grandma put a 357 in his mouth and his brains were on the wall, okay? Grandma's in the other room saying he fell in the shower, somebody help him. So, that was my introduction to death. That's the first time I touched human brains. Okay, back in those days we didn't wear gloves. Um, and it was the first time I got to do a death notification. And I was pretty shaken. We left there, we went to the Mexican restaurant, I went to the bathroom, washed the blood and brains off my hand, and they said, you better toughen up, boy, or you ain't gonna make it in this business. Because that's how you make this business. You get tough, you forget about everything else, you get tough, you go on to the next call. And then, on Friday morning when we start our four-day, you show up at the bar and we play hard. We drink hard, we play hard, we, you know. So the first lot of years of my, my career, that's what I thought you did. You took all that stuff that went on in the week and you crammed it down the bottle and you left it there until the weekend. And then you went out and you drank scotch, you rode wild horses, you raced four-wheel drive trucks, you repelled off the cliffs, you scuba dived to 110 feet in the Sea of Cortez, you went and chased the adrenaline, because that's how you dump that bottle out and empty it out enough to go survive another week. The only problem with that is, eventually you get a little older, you screw up and get married and have kids, you know, the four-wheel truck budget gets to be less, okay? The, the horses go away and you get dogs. Uh, you quit, you know, scuba diving and going on trips. Those, the adrenaline quits working for you but you're still packing stuff in that bottle. 
Then one day, mine was the year 2000, um, in my case, I lost my mother and my brother both to cancer within six months. And then some family friends that were attending uh, a family reunion next to the gas line pipeline got burnt to death and blew up 13 members of the extended family all day in the same incident that I responded to. So that didn't break me. It didn't change my mental health status. I just got numb. I was just absolutely numb. I didn't feel anything. I had reached the nirvana of paramedics. I was officially known as a burnout. Any other females in here be called a burnout? That was me. I was a burnout. Because you know what? I was still a damn good paramedic. I still uh, ran my calls. You know, I gave very great technical care. I really didn't care if you lived or died. If you lived, that's okay. If you died, that was okay too. Really didn't matter. You know, grandma, somebody's baby, didn't matter what it was, I was absolutely numb. Which was okay, because I was a burnout. So it was okay that I didn't feel pain. I didn't feel anger, I didn't feel sadness. Think that's a good thing in this business. You don't feel it so anymore, but you know what? I'll tell you something I recently learned. When you don't feel anger anymore, you don't feel joy anymore. When you don't feel sadness, you don't feel happiness. When you get, when you block all those negative emotions, you lose all the positive emotions on the other side. You're numb on both sides. So my jar was full, the cap was on tight, I was feeling nothing, and I was numb. For pretty much the next 20 years of my life. 2016, I retired. Yeah, I failed. I got F minus in retirement. I retired. I moved to the great state of Kansas because I'm married girl from Kansas, married girl from Kansas, buy a house in Kansas. Okay? So we moved to northeastern Kansas. I retired. That lasted about 11 months. But retirement was supposed to make me happy, but it didn't. My retirement was supposed to make my wife happy, but it didn't. So she said, I don't like you. Go to work. Get a job. Okay? Turns out we're hurting paramedics in the great state of Kansas, if you hadn't noticed. So uh, I went back to work. Um, still just pretty numb. Uh, well, let's talk about along the way, EMS started recognizing that we have a mental health problem. We started to see that, okay? Along about the 90s, we thought, we're going to do critical incident stress debriefing. Anybody heard of it, CISD? Okay. You know what? It's been implemented different in different parts of the country. And I'm going to step on somebody's sacred cow. But I can tell you, in a lot of places, it was done very poorly. A lot of places, it was handled badly. And in some cases, we did more damage than we did good. Okay. In some cases, you know, we talked about restraints, need more training. In some cases, four hours of training doesn't qualify you to do mental health counseling. Okay? I was one of those people that was absolutely damaged by attending the critical and stress debriefing. So I know they're not all bad. And it was the only thing we had. At least we were doing something, right? We were trying to do something better. But, um, but a lot of them were not run well. Okay? I will right now put this commercial in. If you're doing a critical incident stress debriefing and you don't have a licensed, trained medical health professional in that room who can intervene when they need to, you're doing something wrong, okay? You're gonna hurt somebody, trust me. Um, we have still ignored 
what happened with mental health in our industry. You know, when I was at the fire department, we had we had seasons. We had new truck season, new baby season, new house season, new life season. Okay, we trained them off. You know, uh, I have a lot of good friends in this industry that are dead from mental health related stuff. Okay. Sparky died of a cocaine overdose. Back in the old days, everybody had a dope nickname, so that you didn't know who you were talking about. So, Sparky died of a cocaine overdose. Mickey Mouse, he uh, killed himself with cigarettes five packs a day. A uh, young kid that I mentored, Jose Luis. Jose Luis rode a rescue truck into a tree at over 100 miles an hour in a suicide. All of these people went along, they all experienced this stuff in EMS, but we didn't respond until it was too late. Okay, in the beginning, you just got tough and shut up. In the 80s and the 90s, we saw, hey, we, we, need, we need to um, do something about this. So we started, we had CISD, but who picked what we did CISD? Okay, because I will tell you the things that bother me aren't the things that bother everybody in this room. Okay? You know, if, you're, if your grandma died in a car wreck last week, and now you just made somebody else's grandma in an accident, that may be the one that breaks you. Okay? But we pick CAISD based on the sensationalism of the call. The bigger the call, the more the news, you know, an officer gets shot, we're going to do CISD. A baby dies, we're going to do CISD. But you know what, if you just code 14 people in three months and none of them make it, who's watching out for that? And who's trying to fix it? You know, uh, I really am an old guy because I used to, to, to like John Denver and his wife. And his house used to do a poem. It was called An Ambulance Down the Valley. And the whole thing of the poem was, beautiful people on a cliff, but people kept falling off. So we put an ambulance in the valley to take care of the people and provide great care but nobody wanted to fix the problem of people falling off the cliff. We're not keeping our people from falling off the cliff, okay? As a supervisor, I recognize there's a mental health problem. So what do I do? Probably the same thing some of you do today. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, man, I'm really upset, I don't know what to do. You all got a brochure that comes from HR that says, hey, here's the people we subscribe to. Call the 800 number, somebody's gonna talk to you. Go down to the office and there's somebody there. We hand it to them. How many people actually do that? How many people actually go find a counselor, actually go see somebody, go talk to somebody? Very few. I hand out a lot of those. I hand out a whole lot of those. Um, I thought I was doing something good. Um, I doing time Four minutes. Huh? Four. Okay. So, real quick, my last year, uh, first I took a piece of sheet metal on my elbow and I got MRSA in my arm. Okay. This arm's got a scar across from the wrist and the armpit where it took 50 stitches to fix it. But I plugged on. And then my extremely intelligent daughter, who's currently a biomedical engineering student at Purdue, started flunking out of senior high school. I couldn't figure out why. So I took her to a mental health counselor. I couldn't figure out why this kid was flunking out of high school. Well, as a counselor, she revealed she had been sexually assaulted and hadn't told anybody. So my mom got a little. We, we were talking to a counselor. When we were talking to the counselor, my wife said, you know, while we're in here, I should let you know that our marriage has an expiration date. We've been married 30 years, and she said, I just, I just don't want to do it anymore. You know? You, 
you haven't been there for me emotionally for the last 20 years. You've been numb, and I don't want to be on my own. Nobody was cheating, nobody was fighting, nobody was arguing. Jesus left me. And 30 years of marriage. This job did that in my marriage. My not taking care of my mental health did that in my marriage. But that's okay, because life goes on. Then I got COVID. Okay, COVID came right back, COVID. I spent 11 days on COVID ward struggling to breathe. The first three days were the worst. There were things that happened to me in the hospital that never happened to anybody. Okay? There were things that happened in the hospital that were a violation of the Geneva Convention. We treat prisoners there when I was treated. Um, I wrote to my list of my kids in the hospital because I had presumed I would never see them again. I had the worst experience of my life in the hospital when I had COVID. I got out, it took me three months before I could walk and talk and breathe and get around again. But I also figured out I couldn't sleep with the lights on. I couldn't put my CPAP on to breathe at night. I couldn't stand to think about somebody having COVID and I needed to come back to work. Because my wife was leaving me and I had to have health insurance. So retirement wasn't an option, I couldn't afford it. And so that, that same counselor who started as my daughter's counselor, I didn't believe the counselor, so I told him, I, you may be good for my kid, but it's all a bunch of mumbo jumbo. But he was good for my kid. And he was my marriage counselor, then he was my divorce counselor, and he became my PTSD and depression counselor. And you know what? He's the reason I'm here today, okay? Because there were nights that the gun was loaded on the table, okay? I will tell you, this is where I started figuring some things out. We don't do very good at taking care of each other. So I thought, who do I call? Who do I call right now? Okay? There's a loaded gun on the table. Who do I call? And it was a pretty short list. Because if I called my boss, he's going to call my one, the cops are going to show up. Okay? That kind of scenario gets, gets, gets worse from there if we go down that road. So I figured out, as I'm talking to this counselor, and I still see him every week. Folks, I'm in counseling. I go every week, and I've preached against it for 40 years. I'm telling you right now, if you ain't got a counselor, don't find you one. Because if you've been in this business this long, you got some stuff to unpack. And there's things I have no idea. But you know what? That story of catching that person with brains, I completely forgot that. But you know what? Obviously, if I remember the details, if I remember the name of the Mexican restaurant I went to to wash my hands after I touched human brains 40 years ago, Okay, I don't know I call kids' names. If I remember that, it affected me. And I needed to talk to somebody about it. And not relive it in my nightmares, but review it, process it, figure it out, and get rid of it. Okay, I need to open that bottle and dump that crap out because I let the bottle get too full. So, okay. So, what I'm saying is, we've got to change. We've got to do something better. We have to be proactive. We've got to figure out how our people deal with this up front self-reporting isn't working. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, hard to follow that emotionally, but let's, let's, let's talk about the optimism associated with getting things improved, right? And steps that can be taken. And in the latter half of this presentation, I hope we'll talk a little bit about what is and can be done and why we have to ask ourselves the question, can we afford not to do? Uh, all that is needed to deal with exactly what Rob just laid out so eloquently and uh, illustratively. So I'm gonna let Ron Nichols, director of Chambers County EMS, speak for himself. Fortunately, he can't be here today, but you get about 10 minutes of how an example of a rural service just outside of Houston 
uh, is proactively and actively engaging with these very issues and the tools that can be translated from their method. Hello everyone, my name is Ron Nichols. I'm the director of Chambers County EMS. Chambers County, Texas. We're a small rural EMS service. I'm not very many square miles. Uh, so a little bit of my history. I've uh, been in EMS for over 20 years. Uh, prior to that, I was a Marine for six. Um, did multiple tours um, in different areas. Was actually one of the first units deployed to, to Afghanistan, Northern Afghanistan, right after 9-11. Um, and so, one of the things we've done, uh, that I've done, um, my history, I struggle with PTSD and depression. So, um, I've got a history of PTSD and depression. I've been hospitalized for it on multiple occasions for it. Uh, thankfully, with the help of multiple different people um, that are looking out for me, I am in a much better place and off of all of that stuff. Um, so one of the things that I've always been very strong proponent of uh, in EMS, especially as administrators, taking care of our medics, taking care of our firefighters, and make sure we're, we're treating the mental health side of things just like we do everything else. Um, so we've been using, using data to do that. Um, so I apologize, I can't be here today. Um, I'm on COVID quarantine, yay, uh, in my office by myself. Um, so it's entertaining. But um, so well, we're with you in spirit, Ron. We're with what? You. We're with you in spirit. Yeah. So a few numbers uh, just kind of give you an idea. So approximately one in five adults experience some type of mental illness every single year. About one in twenty-five actually have some serious mental illness, um, which could be you know living one or more of their major life activities. Um, about eighteen percent of adults in the U.S. are going to experience some type of anxiety disorder, whether it be PTSD. Obsessive compulsive disorder or psychosis. Um, one thing you'll notice in most of my slides, and you'll be talking about it, uh, we call it post traumatic stress or acute stress syndrome. I don't like using PTSD because I don't believe PTSD is actually a disorder. I think it's a middle thing that we can all work through at some point. Um, so if I don't add the D in, that's why. So about 50% of adults experience some type of substance use disorder um, or living with mental illness. Um, and then third, the most common cause of hospitalization in America for adults between the age of 18 and 44 is some type of mood disorder. So major depression, bipolar disorder, things of that nature. Um, 18 to 22 veterans every day commit suicide. Um, that's something I also do, veteran suicide awareness hotlines, um, and we're going to call for that and try and prevent that as much as possible. And then with first responder suicide, this has been a, a big topic since about 2017, yet we still don't have the statistics to get accurate, accurate numbers, because only about 40% of the time is it actually reported to the appropriate channels that they were a first responder and related to suicide. So where did some of these numbers come from? Um, so in 2015, Florida State University did a study of 1,027 firefighters. And there's been some other studies that follow up, but they don't have as many uh, as, as, as uh, good data. But 46% of responders report suicide ideation or thoughts of actually having suicide. 19% of responders report having had plans of death or suicide. Um, about 15% have reported that they attempted death by suicide. And 16% have reported having inflicted non suicidal self injuries. Um, there's other studies out there too um, that can give you some, some more numbers. Uh, in response to first responder suicide. And the IASF did a large study and put out some details in 2017, and that's where we did some of our program from. So a few things that we can do to help. So number one, we have protocols and checklists. We have clinical guidelines. We have all of those things for everything that we do in EMS as a whole. 
uh, fire departments, EMS, the first responders, your sheriff's officers and, and police officers have checklists they go through every morning uh, before they, they start on duty. So why don't we have the same thing for occupational stress, mental health awareness? Um, so that's one of the things that we, that we need to look into it. Uh, do the trauma screening questionnaire. So after about every two, about two or three weeks after you have a major incident, there's a little questionnaire you fill out that'll be provided in the slides and we can provide you more documentation later. Have the medicine the firefighter fill it out. If they score six or higher uh, on that quiz, and it's just some simple questions, but if they score six or higher, we need to make sure we give some type of mental health um, and, and Troy's going to go see somebody or talk to somebody for an EAP program or something like that effect. Um, try and transition from the standard EAP programs. Um, I can attest because I used them when I was going through my major struggles back in 2012, 2013. Um, I, done, I was having some major issues. They contacted the city's EAP program and actually made the therapist cry on the other end because they're not experienced with dealing with what we deal with the first responders. So try and transition away from some of your EAP programs and start finding some behavioral health assistance programs with some clinicians that, are, that have exposure and know how to deal with first responders. Um, make sure you give those guys all the extra effort they're going to need. And then the big thing is do hot wash most incidents. Anything that you think might be a, a trigger for those medics, do a quick hot wash with them, whether it be through Microsoft Forms or in person, it doesn't matter. Um, so, <clears throat> Why does this stuff kind of matter and how do we kind of track that? So on average, a system with, let's say, 10,000 calls annually, they'll have an average 50% of those calls are going to be a potentially traumatic event. They could cause some PTSD. Um, so a PTE can occur in a 20-year career first responders or in a new, new recruit. So it doesn't matter. It just depends on how they're affected. So some of the things you want to utilize to figure out that data when you're creating your guidelines is uh, use your dispositions that you have that you use on a daily basis for your PAPI process. So cardiac arrest for your breast, um, any pediatric call, right? Any major trauma call, um, anything that would be considered a signal event when you're doing a normal QAQI review. All those things will help you kind of figure out what those calls we need to do the hot watches on and what's what we need to follow up for. So how, how are you describing a signal event specifically? So a signal event is gonna be anything that um, would be flagged in your system. So, you know, for us, a single event would be all of our priority one and priority two calls we consider um, single events. They're not single events, but they get the level one QAQI. A single event would be the patient died, whether it was your fault, whether it was prior arrival, that's a single event. Um, anything where you have maybe, maybe a, a major uh, clinical issue on a call, that would be considered a, clinic, be considered a single event. But what we found is some of the single events we look back on them, we start reviewing back the fact that in Indiana was mistakes made, but maybe the mistake was made because once you dig into it a little bit further, we found this three times in the last two months, to give you an idea. Had a single event, had a patient where the outcome wasn't as good as it should have been. After doing interviews with the medic and trying to figure out what happened, realized that that medic related that patient to their grandmother, or that medic related that patient to their brother or sister. And so when that happens in our head, we don't always, we can't always focus on what we're doing. So. That's why anything that's a single event, make sure you flag that so that you can review that, make sure it's not something to do uh, with the PTS on the back end. Um, so uh, the checklist for your mental health awareness program, um, ours is called the Resiliency for Total Wellness, and it's actually incorporated into our, our county wellness program, which includes our physical health screenings as well. Um, so we have a check sheet for post-incident hot wash, as well as the trauma screening questionnaire. 
Um, the medics, when they do the post-incident hot wash, our county has a program, the wellness program, where they get wellness points. Um, so if they're seeing uh, a mental health professional or using our employee assistance program that's designed for our first responders, they actually get additional wellness points to go towards that. Um, so that's something we've incorporated into it to kind of encourage them to do it more. Um, so on your surveys, things of that nature. So everything we do in EMS, as soon as we're done with the call, we do a PCR. We do our, our primary care report, right? So build your surveys into your PCR system. Your hot wash checklist sheets can be built into your PCR question. Your trauma screening questionnaire can be a survey that you send out on the back end. Or any other check sheet that you're utilizing for the mental awareness and build them into it. And then create your analytic reports so that you can track that data and monitor your results. Um, whichever PCR system you're using gives you access to generate your own reports and how you want to track those. Um, so was the screening done? If it was done, did, did we have improvement from when we started the program to six months later and we're doing the trauma screening questionnaires and we have less likely of a result to send somebody to get additional additional treatment, right? Those are, that's all data that you can track and that we track on, on a regular basis. So for our system um, in the last six and a half to eight months, we've seen an, uh, an overall increase in the morale as well as a, a reduction in PTS and, and ATS symptoms since this statement program in July of 2020. Um, especially in the last uh, six months um, of this year with the, the recent spike in COVID, it made a huge difference. Um, we actually increased our billables by almost triple um, during that instance, which is okay because I budgeted for it, that's what it's there for. Um, but uh, as far as the medics getting and seeing, the, seeing their therapists and things of that nature, um, so that's actually helped overall increase the morale and increase productivity uh, in the EMS system. So um, that's just a quick breakdown. I wish I was there to answer more questions. Hopefully I'll be able to do that with you guys um, at the end of this, this and I'll be able to do it virtually. Um, but uh, if you have any questions, John will provide you my email address and my cell phone number. It's on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can attest to that. Um, you guys are welcome to call me if you have any questions. All right. So, yeah, I'm sure you can see why we put these gentlemen back to back. Those stories tied in with remarkable uh, uh, intersection. Uh, and so, uh, speaking of the slide that Ron mentioned, uh, I figured it was more important to see him than to see the slides, but if anyone is interested in specifics on the data, uh, here they are. So I've got a series of slides, the details that he provided, including the number of citations. This is an image of the uh, trauma questionnaire that he referred to. Again, the list of Sentinel events, uh, and so on and so forth. So if for any, anyone who has interest in this, let us know. We'll be happy to share the slides with you. Um, and uh, since I have had the pleasure of working with Ron for some time, uh, what he's inspired in our system is to describe the two types of events essentially as basically pink flags and red flags. It just seemed worth noting this, right? The, the pink flags are the things that can add up to the red flag, right? The red flag is the, the clear and obvious trauma, the one that uh, something's probably a little off with you if you're not feeling uh, that. But the pink ones are the ones that, that kind of build up over time, that on an individual basis might not force you to, to say I'm having an issue, but again, they kind of quietly build in the background, and we think both of those are worth tracking. So as a way of closing out here, and hopefully leave some time for questions, I wanted to bring this down again to the practical, to talk a little bit about uh, why when someone says you can't afford not to deal in mental wellness and health, and again, I'm a business guy, oops, scary. I'm a business guy, I'm not a clinician, uh, wish I was, but that's another story entirely. Uh, so to the degree that 
one can make an argument to one's board, to one's uh, owners, to one's city council, to one's whoever it is that's running your organization, your team of managers, your team of crew, of that you can't not engage in this kind of proactive uh, engagement of that which everyone sees every day. I thought it would be helpful to provide some numbers. And quite frankly, I'm shocked that it's taken this long for an industry to get to the point where someone could put some numbers to this. So I, I found it frankly puzzling, as I mentioned, that it's taken this long because the implications are extraordinary. Uh, morale and turnover is the obvious one. What's less obvious is the cost of that. That's what we're going to talk about, right? It's not. It's not simply, especially at a time when there is uh, when we're hurting for people, right? It's not simply a matter of swapping out, you know, pawns on a line. That these are they're people, yes, but they're also really expensive resources to find. There's the question of quality, right? Of and, and you heard that from uh, Captain Brady. You also heard that from Ron. The impact of these underlying issues on the work that you're doing every day. So that can, of course, lead to problems involving revenue capture, which can lead to problems of keeping the lights on. We know that that's a crisis across the United States, but certainly in rural spaces these days, and the obvious legal risk that can bang into your head over and over again, and again, make people very fearful of coming forward and documenting in the chart. But again, if we shift the culture, shift the frame a little bit, start to ask the question of what happens if we don't? Right? So if you have this, like, this recognition that acute stress, post-traumatic stress, however we want to phrase that, tends to kick in on a delay, right? You go home, you decompress, you empty out that bottle, and maybe that bottle is not a figurative one, it's a literal one, right? And then you come to, and it starts to hit you what you've just seen. You, your, your memories start to consolidate as you finally get some sleep. Um, and so by that point, the time for conversation may have passed, for obvious conversation, right? That's why when Ron talks about getting in there right away, right? Because by the time you let it simmer, it starts to create scar tissue, scar tissue being obviously that much harder to get through. So what is the risk? And we can ask ourselves, you can think about it both economically, but also in terms of personnel and management and legal risk. What is the, the relative risk of being proactive versus waiting? How much damage are we doing by not jumping in front of that bullet? Um, as an example, we're going to talk about this, the, that the VA, as a place that certainly deals with a lot of post-traumatic stress issues, as you've heard, uh, Cites a, a figure, this is from our colleague Art in Vermont, $8,300 uh, to treat someone in the first year. But how does that compare with the cost of letting them go? Right? How does it cost compare with the cost of letting them burn out, take extended leave, have to backfill that position? <laughs> uh, the American Ambulance cites that about 25% of all people uh, working in this gig will turn over every year, citing one in the, in the top five list, citing the stress that they encounter. So now, compare the previous slide. At $8,300 to jump in front of that patient, that person, excuse me, and have them become your patient, to invert the care you're providing outward onto each other. And if you could take, you could spend $8,300 to save, save 10 to 20,000, would you do that every day of the week? Well, you know that these folks are gonna get affected. You know that each of you is gonna get affected. So it's not a question of if you're going to have to deal with this cost. It's a question of who you're going to have to deal with this cost for. So to the degree that you can implement something that catches the problem, stitch in time saves nine and all that, wouldn't it make sense to jump in front of that? And to an increasing degree, you won't have a choice because 26 states currently require PTS, P 
TTS, although with Ron's uh, uh, acronym there, to be covered under workers' comp, and additional ones are kicking in. And that cost isn't even factored in to the cost of attrition that we just talked about. And one example I want to cite here from Michigan EMS, again, with thanks to Art for providing these numbers, that uh, as of this past August, Michigan uh, cites it as about 20, nearly 29,000 EMS providers and just over 1,800 agencies. And so to the degree that let's assume, again, one in five, or one in four, so even worse than, or even better rather than the, uh, uh, than the one in four cited in these other studies, will we'll actually develop some sort of syndromic affect with respect to the work that they're doing. They found that the cost of care was about $23 million statewide, or $8,150 each. So right in line with the estimate from the VA. But if you compare that to the cost of attrition associated with that same time period, we ended up with a cost of, excuse me, a thousand people who left, just over a thousand people, at a cost of 17.9 million, or nearly $17,000 per person who left, due at least to a, one in the top five reasons of why they'd leave would be the stress and associated health decline and so on, associated with having done that again, that does not include the, the workers' comp costs. So as a closing point here, show of hands, how many of your services are interested in this thing called community paramedicine? That also includes mobile integrated health, community health work, community health paramedicine, community integrated paramedicine, and all the other names that it goes under. Yes, a couple hands, show mine. Okay, so this is a thing, right? So let me caution you, and this is an article that I wrote uh, following a presentation at the International Roundtable of Community Paramedicine five years ago. So has any of you heard, let me ask this, another show of hands, and hopefully from the same people who are interested in this, in community paramedicine, have you heard about the special risk of post-traumatic stress and other psychological traumas as they impact individuals, clinicians, engaging in community paramedicine? Show of hands. None? Think about this. It's taken five years, and I'm finally able to give you some special insight that was relayed to me by three leaders in this space. Brian LaCroix, who recently retired from Alina Health in Minnesota, also former president of the National EMS Management Association, Pat Songer, and Monique Rose, uh, who is a flight medic and an all-around badass in my world. Uh, this woman's amazing. Uh, and she gave a presentation five years ago about how close to the edge she came as a lead medic for the time I believe she was still at Humboldt General Hospital. Because EMS, fire, mobile medicine, you see some nasty stuff, right? But you don't have a personal attachment to the arm that just came off. I mean, that's nasty. And the gentleman in the bathtub, someone's attached to them, but you're more attached to the experience than you were to the gentleman. Not so with community paramedicine. And so as much as you learn to develop scar tissue and compartmentalize physical trauma, right, all the nastiness and the stupid that you see every day, and oh man, I have a dear friend who recently passed. He had COPD and cancer, and he had an oxygen tank, and he still went outside and smoked the cigarettes. It was from him that I learned that you can burn off your eyebrows from the oxygen in the CPAP while you're smoking. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing until I found out it was a thing. Um, and so you're, you're used to compartmentalizing that. 
but no one teaches you how to heal a broken heart, right? And so the idea that the community paramedics get to know their patients, this is longitudinal care, it's home care, it's hospice mapped onto mobile medicine, right? It's hospice with a siren in many cases. And when those folks decline, because inevitably, you know, most people die at some point, um, the idea that not only have you been facing their decline, but you also feel that stigma again of failure compounded over the amount of time that they told you about their kids who didn't come visit, so they were so happy that you did. <laughs> That's a totally different kind of pain, and this industry is not ready for it. And five years ago, Monique was talking about how she wasn't ready for it. And now everybody's talking about community paramedicine and no one's talking about the harm that that practice, unguarded, can do to everybody in this room and the folks who work for you. That is where this conversation needs to go because otherwise we will find ourselves with an entire generation of clinicians that are wounded in ways they weren't prepared for. And you can watch television shows and emergency and bringing out the dead and I will not admit on record that any Chicago show was a guilty pleasure for me, so nobody heard that from me. Um, but but the, I think I just did, didn't I? But, but the fact is, they don't talk about what happens in these environments that aren't heavy adrenaline, but they are absolutely heavy on emotion. And so I'd like for that to be hopefully your takeaway. Uh, Captain Brader, I didn't know if you wanted your contact information shared, so it wasn't on this slide, but uh, certainly would be happy to add it in before we send it out if that's something you'd like to do. Uh, beyond that, thank you all for letting us uh, speak with you today. If you have any questions, certainly happy to answer them. Uh, Ron, as he said, is available. The guy pretty much doesn't sleep, makes me feel unproductive.